Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode. And today I have with me John Katzos. John uh, was part of a team that wrote a series of articles that appeared in this month's issue of the Harvard Business Review. I wrote a blog post based upon one of those articles, and John reached out, and we had a really engaging dialogue. So I asked him if he would come onto the podcast. In this podcast, we talk about his series of articles, Performing Due Diligence in Conflict Zone, and several other important issues for the compliance professional. I'd like you to check out a new podcast on the Compliance Podcast Network, Hidden Traffic, with host Gwen Hassan. She takes a look at human trafficking and modern slavery from the corporate compliance perspective. I know you will find it incredibly important. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode. And today I have with me John Katzos. John uh, was part of a team that wrote a series of articles that appeared in this month's issue of the Harvard Business Review. I wrote a blog post based upon one of those articles, and John reached out, and we had a really engaging dialogue. So I asked him if he would come onto the podcast, and uh, he graciously agreed to. So, John, first of all, welcome, and I have to say, uh, you are my first guest from the UAE. <laughs> well, thank you for inviting me, Tom, and thanks, everybody, for listening. I, I'm glad to be the first, the first of hopefully many from the UAE, or at least based in the UAE. So... Um, First of all, John, could you tell us a little bit about your academic uh, professional background and what you're up to now? Yeah, sure. So uh, I'm a lawyer by training, as 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 with yourself, and um, still registered to practice in New York. But I've been in the UAE now for 11 years. Um, originally, I came from um, a sort of a, a compliance, but more fraud investigation background um, on the legal side, and then I started teaching business law and ethics and social responsibility here in the UAE about. Yeah, 11 years ago. And and it's been great in part because there's such a demand for for not just American legal education, but but business law education in particular on the due diligence side. So it's it's been a lot of um, a work in regional contexts, not just in the UAE. John, one of your areas of academic interest is due diligence in conflict zones. Mm -hmm. And I actually should say it's broader than just simply academic. I think professional interest as well, because you assist companies in this area. But I'd like to maybe explore this because it's a specific topic I uh, didn't know a whole lot about. Mm -hmm. So could you talk to us about what is due diligence in conflict zone and what makes it so difficult? Yeah, so in the UAE, we have a lot of this sort of work because the UAE tends to be, especially Dubai, tends to be the regional hub for countries in the region. And the UAE is sort of the really nice house in the dodgy neighborhood. So the regional hubs tend to cover these countries that have all sorts of problems, especially conflicts. When you're a regional hub, though, of a major multinational, you still are exposed to the legal liability very often of your home countries. So, so many of the FCPA cases, for instance, that we see are are in conflict zones, right, or places that have these um, sort of moderate level conflicts, if not the highest level conflicts. But then there's also issues related to, you know, everything from um, sanctions regimes to to meeting all the either UK Bribery Act or, or FCPA things, where UAE companies that are the regional offices of major multinationals are having to deal with all this, all this due diligence work. And so in conflict zones, it's particularly tricky for a couple of reasons. So one is you often are dealing with uh, a, a more rotating cast of characters among your staff because you don't have, uh, you often won't have a regular staff on the ground. So sometimes they're coming from the regional office, but sometimes even your local employees that are there 
who you may be relying on to do some of your more regular due diligence may fluctuate uh, with much more regularity than they would in a non-conflict zone space, right? So people are being forced out because of the violence. Uh, people are declaring refugee status or becoming internally displaced to other parts of the country. And so there's just issues related to human resources that are much, much uh, different. The other big difference with conflict zones is they tend to be much more in flux than sort of a normal non-conflict zone. So what makes conflict zones conflict zones is the fact that they are inherently unstable. And that instability means things are constantly changing. Changing. So your due diligence one day um, is not going to be the same as it is the next day. So if you, you did everything based on a certain set of facts on the ground, those facts on the ground can very rapidly change. And so that makes any due diligence in a conflict zone tenuous, right? Implicitly tenuous, because it might change, right? The facts on the ground can change it really quickly. Fortunately for many energy companies, they have uh, operations in those countries. And so the need for due diligence is ongoing in those countries. Um, after you perform an initial level of due diligence, given some of the challenges you've raised, how can you do that on an ongoing basis? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think it's energy companies and extractives are the ones that have the biggest challenges because you don't pick where the the oil or the gold or any of the resources are. They're just in the ground, right, or, or under the seabed, wherever you might find them. I think the key for those companies is training, right? So if you can train all your personnel on the ground to know what to look for, or at least to know what the issues are, and then have an, a, a strong framework for reporting, you're much more likely to, to get the feedback that you need in conflict settings. Because most companies are not able to send people out on a regular basis to do much more formal, intensive due diligence um, to these places, right? There's all sorts of, there's all sorts of just personnel risks um, that exist in these places. So if you can have the people on the ground have a sufficient amount of training to be able to at least report and know when they should report the problems as they come up, that's a huge hedge. Um, and that can be one of the most important ways that you find out about problems before they come up. And then you can address them fairly readily. So if, if you leave long amounts of time between when you're doing your, you know, whatever your due diligence is, or what I've seen some companies do where they'll do it at the project start, and then they might not do it for years, right? They might not do any update for a long, long time. In conflict zones, you're going to have all sorts of problems. It's just, it's just begging for, for, for civil action or for criminal actions in home countries. So does that level of ongoing due diligence, um, when you ha have that discussion with companies, do they, one, understand it, and then two, will they really take the time and invest the resources uh, to do so, or is it a one and done, like you said? Yeah, I think it depends on the company. I think, funny enough, I think the companies that have been burned by legal actions in the past are the ones that are the most likely to put in the money to making sure that the training is ongoing and sufficient for people in those places. I think what, when you get into is you get into trouble sometimes where there's companies that haven't been burned yet or haven't been burned particularly hard by some of the stiffer fines, either in their home countries or in other places that they operate, that they just don't think, they don't take it sufficiently seriously. Um, they don't think it's a big deal. 
What's interesting also is that there's a lot of companies that aren't necessarily you know, U.S. or EU-based companies that take it more seriously than those companies. Um, and part of that is a legitimacy factor. So I've seen local UAE companies that are doing regional work have really intense due diligence programs, in part because they want to show that they have the, the same legitimacy and they're trying to meet the same standards as their, their Western-based competitors. So they want to be able to go into some of these markets and say, hey, look, we're doing as well or better as our Western counterparts on the due diligence side. So you can trust us, right? So it becomes a a trust component to it. Let me flip the equation from the company performing the due diligence to the company having due diligence performed upon. Uh, Early on, or maybe that's not the right phrase, but 10 years ago or so, uh, there would be sometimes pushback and uh, from one, either business development folks from a Western company or from the local indigenous companies themselves. But then they began to realize this could be a market differentiator and it could be a net business plus if I've gone through due diligence uh, in, for one Western company, one extractive company, one major multinational energy company. And I can use that to help sell my services. Does that uh, message resonate? Absolutely. Yeah. So I'd say most of the companies approach to when they're having due diligence done to them, they take one of two approaches. One is the way that you just described, where it becomes now we've done this process before. We know what to do. Uh, We've done it with X, Y, and Z companies already. We're good to go. Another is they've become kind of expert at dodging uh, the, the, the due diligence when people come in, right? So all the processes and there's there, I would say there's companies who, who on the ground, especially in conflict zones who almost take pride in their ability to evade, um, inspections and invade the, the, the lawyers and the accountants and the, and the people coming in and checking to see that they're doing all, all the things right. Um, I would say most companies fall somewhere in the middle where, they sort of see it as a burden. They don't really understand it, but they get that to play in this game, they have to do this. The really savvy companies see it as a differentiator and they increase their costs as a result, right? So they see it as a way where they can get, they can extract extra value. Um, and then there's, again, there's a small portion of companies who almost take pride in, in evasion. Uh, you have actually looked at this from an academic research perspective and published a paper around uh, key lessons or rather lessons learned from uh, this process in Cyprus. I was wondering if you could tell us what were some of the key lessons that you found in your research and paper? Yeah, so, so my research tends to focus on how businesses can enhance peace and due diligence is one major component of that, that companies can help promote peace in conflict zones by doing the right levels of due diligence and risk management before they go in, but also on an ongoing basis. So in what we've inserted, what we've observed now in, in multiple countries, but Cyprus was the first, is that companies that go in having performed the right due diligence on each project, but then on, on an ongoing basis, continue to perform um, due diligence and to do risk management tasks are are not only companies that have fewer legal problems, right? Which is uh, honestly often the biggest objective, but also they tend to last longer in those places and have positive impacts on the conflict. Um, so what we saw is is multinational companies were sometimes going into Cyprus, not understanding the local situation on the ground, not having done their due diligence beforehand and getting into a lot of trouble. So maybe the most famous one was Burger King, um, which had gone in and given a, an island-wide um, franchisee 
had sold the franchise to to one particular person for the island. This was a Greek Cypriot in the southern part of the island. Not having realized that under the terms of their agreement with the with their Turkish, um, so in Turkey franchisee, that that under Turkish law also covered the northern part of Cyprus. So there was a conflict in laws between Turkish law and Cypriot law on what a franchisee was allowed to get in terms of territorial coverage. And this was just something they weren't even aware of, right? They were just thinking, okay, well, these are two separate countries. Uh, There should be no issue with any of this not taking into account in either case the fact that there was this pretty big conflict that had been going on in Cyprus for the 30 years prior to when these agreements were signed. And so when the Turkish franchisee basically um, sub sublet his franchise rights in the northern part of Cyprus to someone else, no one, uh, no one thought this was an issue. Um, there wasn't any because there was. They, they just weren't paying attention to it. They hadn't done their due diligence properly. They, they weren't even focused on it. What ended up happening is the the local northern Cyprus Turkish Cypriot franchisee had built out all these facilities. And then at the very last moment, the the Greek Cypriot who had the franchise for Cyprus realized what was happening because they saw the outside of the buildings and and were sent pictures of them and realized what was happening. And so sent a message to Burger King basically saying, you know, what's happening here? I thought I had the sole rights um, in Cyprus. So a a series of legal disputes ensued, not surprisingly. Um, And now the sort of the northern Cypriot Burger King franchisee is is just not called Burger King, but it looks identical to a Burger King. So if you were to go into, I believe it's called Burger Palace. Um, If you go into Burger Palace in northern Cyprus, you're walking into a Burger King more or less, Um, but it's not called that because of the disputes, all of which could have been avoided. Right, so it all could have been avoided with with proper due diligence and, and people really looking into these conflict related issues. John, I'd like to now turn to your series of articles in this month's Harvard Business Review. Um, first of all, uh, you are also my first uh, Harvard Business Review author that I've interviewed, so you're a double a double all star today. But uh, it was uh, in the Big Idea section, which is one of my favorite sections, and it was a called or rather entitled "Preparing for the Era of Uncertainty." And maybe I could start with how did you come up with this idea for these series of articles uh, and maybe take us uh, through the process? Sure. Yeah. I mean, so it was it started about a year ago when myself and one of my regular co-authors, Jason Micklian, and I were talking about how COVID didn't seem like it was going to end. So this is early 2021. And we, we were sort of uh, almost laughing um, because we had heard from a lot of our colleagues in the field that you know, the world is experiencing crisis, but crisis is kind of a normal for us, right? So in, in war zones and conflict zones, crisis is, that's what you expect. You don't expect um, sort of non-crisis. Non-crisis is maybe almost scary because you think something's wrong. So with that got us to thinking, you know, what were the lessons we could draw out from these conflict zones to help companies that are now dealing with constant uncertainty? Because what we also realized is that, you know, COVID wasn't going to end anytime soon. Um, but that it was also going to lead to a whole other set of crises. So we were in this what we what we've since termed the era of uncertainty, just a time of um, constant uncertainty where we move from crisis to crisis. And this was being uh, sort of supercharged by the fact that climate change, globalization, and social inequalities were all kind of converging at exactly the same moment. Um, so we wanted to share the lessons we had learned from constant crisis zones with the rest of the world, especially with the business community, so that people could see it's not an impossible task, but the playbook is different. 
Um, the playbook for dealing with with constant crisis is not what you would do in the past. So in the past, you know, you'd have a, a singular crisis that you would have to adapt to, address, and then you'd move on from as you return to whatever normal was. But that's not what we see happening, right? Over the next 20 years, we see us moving from crisis to crisis to crisis with not really much space in between. And so this is really, the feature is really the playbook for, for how companies can deal with that. So could you go through each article and just give us a, a few words, a summary, John? Sure. So in the first, the first article is really, if you're going to read the feature, the first article is the place to start. So a new crisis playbook for an uncertain world lays out um, what the, the sort of the broad outlines of the playbook are. And, and we focus on these three. So the fact that climate change, globalization, and global inequality are converging to create constant crisis. But then we, we outline some really specific ways of dealing with that. And these are all things that have to be taken together. So you can't sort of take them in isolation. And so the first part of this is really making community um, your partners. So being less like a separate actor in society and more like an embedded citizen part of the community. So what we saw is that companies that did that tended to not only you know survive through crises, but also were thriving. The second piece of this is to look beyond legal norms, right? So to not just look to whatever the law says, but also then to look to what's the right thing to do in these particular communities, what's the ethical thing to do. And that builds on the first piece. So if you're really an embedded member of the community, you really understand what the right thing to do is in those communities and you abide by that. And so we gave this example of um, a Korean company, POSCO, that had gone into India built this you know, $10 billion facility um, and relied principally on the local government to provide them with um, the information and the laws related to what was going on. But what, they, what ended up happening is the laws then suddenly changed uh, and changed in, in favor of, of the local government and against the, the local community to the point where about 5,000 people were relocated to what were more or less concentration camps and kept uh, segregated and out from their homes and from the rest of the community. So what we saw there is a company really trying to do its best and trying just to do its best by following whatever the legal norms were of the local government, but being boxed into a particular position because the local government was corrupt. Right. So not not because of anything that the company did or didn't do, but because the company didn't anticipate that they would have to go beyond the legal norms. Um, and then the third piece, which is probably the one that is the most uh, the most contentious or the one that, that we we find people getting the most upset about is to take principled political stands on the basis of the ethical behavior and the community relationships. So being really clear when there are divisive political issues on which side you stand on. And this is the one that, again, people, people really struggle with because a lot of times businesses used to, in the past, being a neutral actor. So not having to take a stand on, on really divisive issues and, in fact, not taking a stand on divisive issues being a positive of being business. But what we found in these constant crisis settings is that not taking a stand makes businesses look very disingenuous um, and ends up, ends up really hurting their credibility. Whereas the businesses that ended up th uh, thriving, not just surviving were the ones that were very clear on their positions on divisive issues, but were also open for business, right? So weren't saying, you know, oh, we're excluding people who don't agree with us. No, no, we, we don't agree with you. This is our particular stand on this issue, but 
we're open for business, right? So if you want to buy sandwiches from us, if you want to come to our company, if you want to do anything, we're not gonna we're not gonna discriminate against you, um, just because you know we don't agree with the same we don't have the same political position. So that's the first article, and that really summarizes the whole um, that captures the whole idea and gives a lot of the background for it. The second piece is. Um, is basically a summary of an 80,000-plus person study that the Working Through Violence research team, which I'm a part of and Jason's a part of, um, did in seven cities. So we surveyed, um, we surveyed these people to basically figure out how they were managing through a crisis and how they were dealing with business in that context. So we wanted to figure out um, you know, what people thought um, and how they how they thought businesses could handle the crisis and what they were able to do, and what we found is that in particular small businesses, the ones that were the most embedded in the community were the most likely to survive, but also the least likely to get government assistance. So it was the big companies that tended to get the government assistance, but then wouldn't uh, you know wouldn't necessarily be particularly as particularly embedded in the community. And then in our third piece, which is about building a culture that can withstand crisis, we have a really excellent um, interview with um, a CEO, Alice Lauer, who's the CEO of CTG, a company based here in the UAE, that helps provide um, basically humanitarian aid logistics support. Um, So they provide staffing and logistics solutions to the humanitarian community in in over 20 countries. And they work in some of the hardest places on earth. So they were in West Africa during the Ebola epidemic. They were in South Sudan when it broke off from Sudan. They're in Gaza. Um, And in all these places, they've been able to build this corporate culture that really allows them to, um, again, not just survive, but to thrive in these environments. They do it by really embedding themselves in the local community. So they're not just flying in expatriates to come in and do all the work um, while excluding the locals. They're, in fact, coming in, training local staff, um, having every member of their um, of their project and every member of the company really be in all these different places. So if you have someone here in the UAE office who's even like a back office person, they're going to be having exposure to these to these conflict zones. So no one's no one's going to be shielded. Um, from the real work, quote unquote, the on the ground work. Instead, everybody's really committed to this process that's happening in the organization. So the the, the interview with her is really excellent because it gives a CEO's perspective on how to build uh, a company culture that from scratch, which is what she did, um, that really allows a business to survive in these in these environments. Because she did it knowing that she was going to be in these places. So it's a really interesting way of looking at at that. Um, the the piece after that is a great piece, an invited piece from Paul Pullman, who is the CEO of Unilever, um, and Andrew Winston. They've got a book coming out soon. And they basically talk about the types of resilience that they see companies uh, need. So they sort of they take this perspective of, you know, what are the traditional types of resilience that we see companies have? And then what are additional types that they also need to have in addition um, to really to really make it through these types of crises? And so they focus on um, purpose, trust, and stakeholders to try to see how companies can survive through these crisis times by by sort of a measure of resilience. Our the fifth piece that's part of the feature is a is another company focus, but it's a slightly different company. So a lot of people in the U.S. might know Juan Valdez. Um, Juan Valdez goes by uh, the Federación Nacional de Cafeteros de Colombia. Um, that's its official name. And the CEO was sort of in a in a tough spot 
<laughs> when when the in 2008 coffee prices basically plummeted and at the same time a long existing conflict between the government and insurgents in the coffee growing areas really heated up so these these two converged at the same time and he decided to to double down on a process of community engagement that at first didn't go very well in part because it wasn't sufficient enough but then really ended up turning the entire uh, company around um, and getting lots of community buy-in, improve the security of their workers, improve the security of the farmers, and and led to better profitability um, than it would have otherwise. And then the sixth piece, which is which is also really cool, was another invited one where we invited um, eight experts to talk about spotting a modern crisis. So a lot of the work that we talk about is trying to prepare in advance for for crises that that's one of the best ways to do it is to do it in advance not every company has that luxury but if you do right those those um sort of eight perspectives give a great insight into how to prepare in advance for those crises and to see them before they they start so sorry i know it was kind of long-winded but that's a summary of of each of them no actually i wanted you to go through all of those because uh, when i read those as you now know i uh am a compliance professional specifically anti-corruption compliance, but also other areas interest me. And so when I read articles in the HBR, I tend to look at them through the compliance lens, which is why I wrote about uh, your article and indeed the whole series, The Week of Thanksgiving. Um, And so I wanted to use that as a way to introduce, did you write this for the general business executive, really any business executives, or were the concepts so broad that uh, while not thinking about Tom Fox, you you thought I can write something that it's going to appeal to to really every business that uh, company that does business in a crisis zone. Yeah, it was really meant for it was really meant for everybody, and I would say it's meant for everyone beyond just crisis zones, right? Because I think that what we're finding now is that now it's you know supply chains and inflation. Tomorrow it'll be a financial crisis. The day after it'll be something else where. We're no longer having these long lead times before crises hit, so we're having to go into the next one. So it's really something we were we were, we're targeting at everyone to make sure everyone understands this. There's there's it has to be a new playbook for dealing with the the world we're in now, um, and the world we're likely to be in for the foreseeable future because climate change isn't going away. Um, even if everybody even if everybody cut their emissions today, we'd still have climate change. Um, we, uh, social inequalities aren't going away. Um, even if we were to try to, you know, magic, f- flick a magic wand and imp- put in every policy that anyone's asking for to fix inequalities, it still wouldn't fix it straight away. Um, and the same for globalization, right? There's, there's difficulties that globalization causes that are not going to go away. Um, and they're all converging all at once. Perhaps the most prescient thing I heard uh, during the height of the pandemic in 2020 was that we have moved from disaster recovery to business continuity to business as usual. And it struck me you just said that. Uh, Whatever the crisis is, it's going to be the next crisis. And the lead times don't exist. You have to be ready. You have to have boots on the ground or ears on the ground or something on the ground to alert you, and then you have to respond to it. So uh, I really enjoyed that series. I hope our listeners will uh, check them out. Uh, Once again, Harvard Business Review. Um, And the title of the big idea was Preparing for an Era of Uncertainty. John, if I could turn now to some of your uh, research and current academic work and start off by asking, what's it like to teach anti-bribery, anti-corruption classes outside the United States? It's, uh, it's very, very strange 
Um, sometimes because you're, you're, what you're having to start with is to first start to explain why U.S. law in particular applies. So I would say, I mean, and there's a difference here between my, my sort of my undergraduate and graduate teaching and, and executive training and, and business training. So for students, we, we have a whole sort of session at the beginning, you know, why does American law important? Why does it apply in the UAE? And, and so they kind of get that anyway. But for companies, a lot of companies are confused as to why they even care about US or UK law. Why do I care about foreign law at all? If I'm meeting the laws of the UAE or the laws of the country that I'm in, uh, why should I care? So a lot of it is explaining to them things like extraterritorial jurisdiction, right? A lot of them is walking, a lot of it is walking them through, okay, this is how your company is connected. These are the people in your company who are connected. And this is how um, not only the U.S., but all OECD countries are, are pushing this out. And we, so we saw this just the other day, right, with the OECD coming out with their new recommendations. This isn't something that is now any longer constrained to just one place. And the extraterritoriality of a lot of these laws makes it such that almost every major company on earth has to be concerned with this stuff. So that's, that's, I would say the first thing that makes it strange outside the U S is you have to have a jurisdiction conversation that you don't have to have in the U S U S companies understand that U S law applies to them, right? That's, that's an easy conversation, but to convince a, um, you know, a Singaporean company with a UAE branch, that's the regional headquarters, uh, for the office in Somalia, that they need to be worried about the FCPA, you first have to have a jurisdictional conversation. Um, so I'd say that's that's the first big difference. The second is, and this is this happens sometimes in the U.S., but I think it's much more prevalent here, is to say, well, especially from the corruption side, that's just how you do business in those places. Right? This is the usual response. Well, you know, you can't get anything done there without without a little you know something extra on top. And so those cultural barriers, I think, again, are much more on the outside. And what's funny is no one ever admits that it's their culture that it happens in. Everyone always just says, well, when I go to these other countries, this is what they demand of me. And so what am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to be an inhospitable guest and not pay them the bribe that they're asking for? And you sort of have to walk them through that process of, okay, well, if it was okay for them, wouldn't it be legal? And then they sort of scratch their heads and go, oh, yeah, you're right. It is illegal there, too, to pay bribes. Like, well, yeah, I, I got it, right? It's not legal pretty much anywhere that I know of. As far as I know, there's no country that allows bribery in their country. And so then the questions become um, different because you're able to break down some of those preconceived notions that company leaders often have about the places where they do business. They just sort of say, well, those are corrupt places. That's just what we have to do. Um, and that was when you see the things that, for instance, happened at Siemens, where it became really systemic corruption or systemic support of corruption. It was really this, this mindset of, well, you know, no one else is Germany. And so in all those other places, we're just going to we're just going to do what we have to do in those locations. And if that's how we get business, we get business. So outside the U.S., those barriers are much stronger and are things that you really have to break down before you even get to the conversations about what it is they actually have to do. John, how do you see your work or your either academic work or your professional work tying into a broader ESG discussion? Yeah, so for my work, I tend to focus more on the the S and the G. Um, so especially on the peace side, we talk a lot about social issues. Um, we talk less about the environmental and the governance issues, um, sometimes to our detriment. But I think, again, for my work, it's more about the S and the G. So it started for me on the governance side. 
Um, so again, as a lawyer by training, the governance side fits really easily into what I know and, and kind of my background and experience. But then as time has gone on and I focus more on how that fits into a broader peace promoting agenda that companies can pursue, it's become much more social. Because what you realize when you start getting really into the, the peace research is that violence doesn't just come out of nowhere. Um, violence has a basis in larger scale social issues. Um, whether those are what we call horizontal inequalities, so inequalities between groups um, in society, whether it comes down to things like you know systemic or systematic oppression, and all those things then build over a period of time and spike in violence. If it gets really bad, right, then it bubbles over and becomes and becomes wars and, and much worse things. But you'd be surprised how many places there's just low level latent conflict going on um, that every once in a while becomes really heated. I think most uh, business executives and compliance practitioners understand uh, climate change as a part of an overall uh, ESG discussion, particularly focusing on the E part. But um, I interviewed a uh, person who's involved in the fight against uh, modern slavery and human trafficking, mm -hmm. and they brought up the idea of migration, not migration because of climate change, but migration as a part of a discussion around corruption, anti-corruption, and the S part of ESG, mm -hmm. where do you see migration as uh, influencing any of the things that uh, you're uh, studying or interested in professionally? Yeah, so I think that's a great question. I think there's two parts of that. Um, I think there's on the, and it's the same sort of in the corruption landscape, we sometimes talk about the supply side and the demand side. And, and I think with migration, there's the supply side and there's the receiving side. So on the societal side, on the supply side, uh, corruption is a, is a, Corruption and migration are an indicator that something in society is broken, that things don't work. And so if you have people fleeing a place en masse um, or even in dribs and drabs, it means something about that place doesn't work. And so I, I, this, for me, this hits home a little bit more. My parents are, of, we're, I'm Greek, so I'm a Greek, I'm a Greek American, I'm of Greek descent. And there, for a long time, were flood of immigrants leaving Greece, right? So, so emigrants from Greece, immigrants to places like the United States and Australia. And the reason they left was because something was broken. What we see now is people going back, right? And this happens. There's often this flux of people leaving, people coming back. But people are often volunteers in their society. We don't think of them like this, right? Because we think of people as being more um, held down than they actually are. But if something's broken in society, people are gonna people are gonna find ways out. Um, they won't abandon their culture, they won't abandon their language, but they they will abandon a state that's a, that they feel like has abandoned them. On the receiving side, um, the challenges are different, right? So if you're on the receiving side, it means you have a place that people want to come to, right? So there's there's a demand for people to enter into your society, and so the question then is. These people are coming from places that are that they feel are broken, right? So the migrants themselves are leaving because they feel the places are broken. So what are we providing them that is better? But then more than that, how do we make sure that they're not bringing problems with them? And so how do we make sure that they're not going to just relive the same problems that they had from wherever they're leaving from in the current setup? And that's really tough. Um, so I think from, again, from a peace standpoint, it's not something we talk about that much. We more often, we talk about integration. So you'll hear in the EU, especially, they talk about refugee integration, um, at least on the left. On the right, they talk about just keeping people out completely. And they're both missing something, right? And the something that they're missing is, well, how do you, 
people should retain their culture, but how do you make sure they retain their culture, but also adopt enough of the culture they're coming into that they can continue to maintain the peacefulness of the society, which is the whole reason they're going there. So it's really complex. Um, and there's so many factors that are a part of it that make it really interesting. Uh, again, from a research side, it makes it fascinating. John, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode, but I have a bonus question for you. And uh, as you know, I'm a professor's kid, so I'm always interested in what professors enjoy teaching. So could you tell us uh, what's your favorite class to teach and why? Yeah, so for me, it's, um, it's ethics and social responsibility. So in particular, social responsibility at the back half of this course that I teach. So I teach ethics and social responsibility for all our undergraduate business students. So uh, roughly 200 students a year. And what's great about that course is you see students who are business students start to really expand their horizons out and see how all the different things that they're getting in the world are connected to the business education that they're getting. So too often they think just in terms of balance sheets um, or corporate prospectuses. John, the um, now we are at the end of our time, but I was wondering if our listeners wanted any additional information on yourself, any of your research uh, papers or topics, or uh, your academic work, other academic work, where could they go? Yeah, they can go to uh, johnkatsos.com. Um, where you can find sort of all my latest papers um, and all the work that I've done and links to everything. And then if you want to reach out, LinkedIn is the best way to do that. Um, so just follow me on LinkedIn and send me a message and I'll, I'll reply generally pretty quickly. Um, but yeah, either of those two ways is a great way to reach out. John, I really wanted to thank you for this. Uh, the serendipity of us meeting uh, is one of the great uh, experiences of um, social media. Indeed. And literally, uh, you have an article published, I write about it, you reach out, and now we have a podcast. Yeah, We're going to link to the HBR uh, Big Ideas and your articles in the show notes. I hope compliance practitioners will read them because it really provides an insight into ways to think about uh, just moving from uh, what's now business as usual. And I greatly hope we can continue this conversation. God willing. Thanks again, Tom, for having me on the show. And thanks, everybody, for listening. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. I would urge you to check out John Katos' website. Uh, he's got a ton of research materials, a lot of papers directly applicable for the compliance professional. I've read them, and I know you would enjoy and learn a lot from reading them. Also read his five-part series on uh, that was in the Harvard Business Review. I've linked to that as well. We have a new podcast on the Compliance Podcast Network, The History of Insider Training, where Professor Karen Woody interviews some of her students on this most interesting topic. I hope you will check it out on the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.